All right, everybody, we're going to go ahead and get started. That was extremely loud. Thanks, Mike, guys. <laughs> Thanks for uh, coming to the last session of the day. I'm sure everybody's getting anxious to gamble and, and dinner and whatever else you can do while you're here in Vegas. Uh, we'll like this presentation, though. Welcome to Overdose, Legal Risk Mitigation and Response. Please help, him wel help me welcome our esteemed faculty, Jen Bolin. All right, y'all, my mission is to attempt to start out by giving you a stomach ache and then hopefully giving you some tools to get rid of it before you go out to dinner because this is a really tough topic to speak about. Uh, I, if you've heard me at pain weekends, I've talked a little bit about um, overdose issues and being prepared for that, but we never really have time to go deep into the issue. So today we're going to do that in the time that we have hopefully, and then we'll attempt to answer some of your questions. And I really want to get some information from you because I know that many of you uh, feel that you're, you are missing some of the tools that we're talking about. So while I have my disclosures up there, um, I want to ask how many of you have had patients or a patient in your practice that has had an overdose event? So it can be fatal or non-fatal, but ending up in the hospital, um, with an overdose event, it gets labeled like that. Raise your hands really high. Does that scare the you-know-what out of you when that happens? How did you find out about it? You what? Emergency room picked up the phone and let you know. You're lucky. All right. How about the others? Family members? Do they come and talk to you? Family? And, you know, what other ways do you hear about it? Licensing board letter? Okay, that happens coroner giving you a call that's kind of scary right it's an initial thing that can really be upsetting I would think and you know we don't want people to overdose and die that you know there are probably people in this world that are a little bit warped and think that's a good thing to have happen but they're not sitting in this room all right and you know we need to equip you as best we can with a risk management approach to these issues because I'm not a clinician I'm um, not a physician, I, you know, I'm not a coroner, I'm not any of those things. So I can't really talk about the clinical stuff, but we can talk about what needs to be in a risk management portfolio of yours that you can implement and, and reasonably handle on your own uh, in your practice because we had a lot of hands go up in this room. And sooner or later, everybody that didn't raise their hand is probably going to encounter an overdose event in their practice if you are indeed prescribing chronic opioid therapy. And, you know, the hardest thing for you all to do, and it's really unfair to even expect you to be able to do that, would be able to control the patient once they leave your practice, right? You don't have a lot of control over that, but you have control over what you write, how you educate your staff, how you educate your patients, the type of written materials you present to your patients, the topics that they cover. You have the ability to slow things down. You've always heard me speak about slow dancing with your patients, especially new patients. Um, now you have some more information that we didn't have even uh, a year ago relative to how to deal with some of these morphine equivalent issues. Um, you know, how to deal with uh, using your uh, prescription drug database. Uh, we've got issues arising related to the use of naloxone 
and education about that and, and how you might approach that and consider things. There's a risk management side. And then there's very much a medical or clinical side of that. And so I'm here to make you think of some of these things. And these are the objectives. We're going to look at common theories of liability raised in cases where you have physicians charged with inappropriate prescribing resulting in the death of a patient. Okay, they can use the words resulting in serious bodily harm or death in the charging instruments. And you see these things not only in criminal cases, but you also see them in licensing board cases. And this is some of the toughest litigation uh, to deal with. Um, for those of you that have heard me speak before, you'll remember that I always talk about this look back syndrome where we have the experts that are often called in on by both sides in these overdose cases that are looking back at your practice, but they have everything in their head that they know today about opioids and uh, morphine equivalents and all these other things. And they're going to look back and fairly judge how you were walking forward, right? Step by step with the patient sitting in front of you. No. They don't get that opportunity, but that's what they do. And when they look back and you learn that, you might approach risk management a little differently. Um, it, it, you know, in some ways, I feel good standing up here. In other ways, I feel like a pit in my stomach. And the pit in my stomach comes from what are we failing to deliver as educators to you all to help solve some of these problems? Because you're never going to stop the overdose event. You can't prevent everything, right? But you can mitigate against that potential. Well, how are we failing you in getting you the tools that you need? We know we have problems on the payer side. We know there are failures there. We know there are failures with state licensing boards. We know there are failures in our medical communities and the, you know, the professional organizations that are local. Do they teach you about your rules and regulations? Do they talk to you about these in frank ways? And as a courtroom lawyer, that's part of what I do. I talk to people very directly about the events that happen. And we need some of that, from my opinion. Um, but it feels like we failed you because now we're looking at people signing petitions, wanting to stop opioids at certain morphine equivalent levels for everybody, wanting to treat everybody as if they're the same when they're not, and wanting to do these things maybe even before we understand some of the things that science is on the brink of uh, regarding how our bodies process opioids and who's going to do better with what medicine, et cetera. We're just not there yet. But is the answer doing that, stopping it at a certain uh, dosage level? Uh, Deborah Weiner, who is the chief lady uh, for Pain Week, asked a question, what's our plan B? What is our plan B? Well, we can't answer all of these questions tonight in this lecture, but we can make you think about steps that you can take very easily on your own to look in the mirror and be able to answer a really specific question that I'll show you in a minute. Because it's what you would be called to task to do if you are called before your licensing board in an overdose case where you're going to end up going to trial or somebody's at least going to evaluate you from an expert perspective or worse, you end up with a battle over your prescribing and over your financial and resulting in the death of the patient. And we've had a couple of cases this year either go to trial 
one in Alabama, and another one in Alabama that went and resulted in a guilty plea where there were some problems that maybe could have been mitigated, and you know, but for the actions of the defendants that indicated some bad intent, um, you know, maybe there would have been some li our lives saved. And we don't know that answer, but we do know that you don't want to look like those people because those people had problems when it comes to being honest and straightforward about how you take care of people you prescribe opioids to and how you handle this overdose issue. Um, let me go back one second. We're going to look at a, a few elements of risk mitigation and response, and we're going to proactively examine some future uh, risk mitigation areas that I think are developing uh, here. And you'll probably, uh, anybody from Arizona? Okay, what do you guys have to do? Do you know? Relating to overdoses. You report them. Who said that? Raise your hand. Yes, it's mandatory in your state of Arizona. It's mandatory, and that's a new rule. And so if you're not aware of that and you're from Arizona, one of the first things you write down is my homework to go figure that out. But all the other states aren't there yet. There are, you know, symptoms of that happening across the country, but we're not there yet, but Arizona does have that. So we'll look at a few other things. So you have a target on you, and anybody in chronic pain management prescribing the opioids, treating people with chronic opioid therapy, is going to have felt a little bit under stress in the last year, right? Fair statement. Okay, it's scary. That's okay. It's okay to, to be scared because that can really motivate you to do some of these things. And I'm trying my best to, to help focus you on this so that we don't repeat these failures that we've had. Because in many ways, a lot of this stuff could have been prevented. Um, and a lot of this stuff can still be slowed down, or at least you can call the attention to your licensing board and many community leaders that you need these things so that you can do your job right. And you might not be the person that gets on the soapbox and starts speaking about it, but you may be connected to somebody willing to do that or a group of somebodies. So that's where we're headed. So lots of stuff in the headlines. Some of these things are old. Some of them are going to seem very obvious, and then some of them you're going to go say, what? How is this happening? Uh, my point in showing you these cases is they're public. Some of them are pending. Um, these cases all have the commonality of resulting in the death of a patient, and that's strong language, and I want you to see, you, you to see it over and over and over again. And sometimes these cases involve you know, a couple of deaths. Other times the cases involve multiple deaths, lots of deaths, dozens of deaths. And we've got had cases like that. And over time, any medical practice is going to have people that die, right? That happens. That's, you know, there's life and there's death. And it doesn't mean that you caused that death. But there are certain things that get looked at to see whether or not you caused. And most of what gets looked at is were you doing what a reasonably prudent practitioner would do in the same or similar circumstances? And if you ask yourself that question repeatedly and you feel like you don't know the answer or you feel a little uncomfortable giving a yes answer, then you want to go back and, and really study that area where you had that discomfort because that's one of the things that you can do to improve your position should this happen and result in an investigation. And I'm sure that there are people in the room that raise their hands that may have undergone 
a licensing board investigation uh, related to the overdose death. I don't want you to raise your hand and call attention to yourself in this crowd, but there are probably people in this room that have been through it. It is not a pleasant circumstance. So here we have a, a jury uh, conviction, um, and this one is a guy named Dr. Lee out of New Jersey, and it was a New York state court where the trial went. And this person did some things that I think everybody would say, well, gosh, that wasn't very smart. No wonder that person ended up in trouble. My point in showing it to you is showing you what they're focusing on that medical experts will look at to see if that could have contributed to the death of a particular patient. Because you not only have the medical expert prescriber, but you often end up with the coroner or medical examiner who has in their, on their plate deciding how, what caused the death of the individual, what the manner of death is and what the cause of death was. And they have to look at those things and they make mistakes, but sometimes they put these very solid cases together. The more you understand about that, the less of a, a fear this is, and the more you can do something about it. So here, where the arrow is, um, Dr. Lee prescribed oxycodone, anti-anxiety drugs, so you've got Xanax in there, to high-risk patients. And then here's the clue. While ignoring evidence of drug abuse and addiction, drug diversion, prior overdoses, underline that one, all right, and degenerating health. And in your patient population, you're going to have people who have degenerating health, right? Pain can help to degeneration. The other medical uh, conditions can also contribute to it. But the real question is, does that opioid belong in that per with that person? And do the benefits outweigh the risks? And in, in, in many of these cases, that's exactly what the experts will go back and look at. And when they're looking at you with today's eyes, looking backwards at what you were doing, they're going to say, well, gosh, this person had sleep apnea, or it was obvious that they had some symptoms of a sleep disturbance, but you never ordered the sleep test study. Um, they told you they were using Ambien. You never talked about that and the use of it with opioids. Um, you were prescribing a benzodiazepine plus the opioid to an individual using a skeletal muscle relaxant and using a sleep medicine. And you've got these, these issues here, and we don't find any of A, B, C, D, E, F, G in your charts. And that starts to look really bad. So what we want to do is turn this around and be a little more proactive about it. So these are the things that they're looking at. This prior overdose event... That some, sometimes be in the medical records from other providers, especially family care providers. It can be, um, you know, hard to get. It may or may not be there. But these are some of the questions that you need to be asking your patients. Have you ever been to the hospital, and has anybody ever administered naloxone to you? Okay? Something like that. And we have to factor these kind of issues into some of our drug testing. I'm not promoting that you do it across the board all the time, but you know somebody that's brand new to your practice that kind of dropped in self-referred may have just walked out of the emergency room, and you've got to deal with that, right? And you're, you know, most of you are likely to say, I don't know enough about you, I'm going to do a workup, and we're going to go slow, but then there are others that will be in a position and they prescribe. What do they know about these past issues? And are you contributing to that? Because guess what they do? They go back, the people that go and prosecute licensing board cases or criminal cases, and they look at the prior history of the patient. 
The experts look at the prior history of the patient. And if you can't get something because you just you, you can't get it, and there's many explanations for that, that's one thing. But if you don't attempt to do it or you ignore what's in that medical record, then that can be a problem. There's a case that was a, a pretty good example of it out of Arizona many years ago with Dr. Jerry Hassman. And in the reported opinion regarding the DEA administrative hearing where they were taking her license back, and at one point they were, she was trying to get it back, um, they examined a patient that she was prescribing high-dose opioid therapy to. And that patient ended up in the hospital, and the hospital did a drug test on the patient. And the results of that test showed that the patient had some problems and was taking much more than the opioids that were prescribed. Uh, the patient comes out of the hospital. Dr. Hassman gets that hospital report, doesn't look at the results of the drug test, didn't read according to the evidence and the findings of the administrative law judge, didn't pay attention to it. And her explanation was, well, it was too many pages. That is a very bad defense, by the way. Okay? And it may be true. It may be a lot of pages, and it may be hard for the physician to get through it themselves every time something like that happens. But you have to have a plan for going through those prior records and looking for these things. Not only ask the question of your patient, ask it in writing. If they don't fill it in, then ask them. Okay? Highlight it and make sure there's a no there in the patient's hand or a disclosure of facts. Because if you skip it and it's not answered, that's going to be a hard fact for a lawyer to deal with if there are other facts that look like you contributed to the death of an individual. So we have to think like that. And, you know, yeah, I know there's not enough time in the day to do certain of these things that we're talking about, but this is a process of improvement. This is going to involve baby steps, and then some of you are going to go, holy cow, when we get to the end of this lecture, I'm going to take one big step, and this is what it's going to be. And that's great. It has to work for you. But we have to talk about these things, and these are the kind of things that the court is raising. So this guy had some obvious problems here. Um, and he was also selling prescriptions to his patients, which you don't do. All right. Um, here, the arrows are pointing. Same individual. This guy's seeing 70 to 100 patients on Saturdays and sometimes on Sundays. All right. Hey, take a break in your practice, right? Take the weekend off. <laughs> well, the point is that he was seeing a lot of people. And when you see a lot of people, you know, there's different lines of what is reasonable for an individual to handle in a day. A physician may be able to handle a few more than a nurse practitioner or vice versa. It really depends on style and a lot of other things. But 70 to 100 seems a little bit unreasonable. Yet there is no real line or number. But if you are seeing a large volume of patients where you're writing prescriptions over and over again, the point is you better have an up-to-date summary of where you are with those people. And you better have thought about your state licensing board requirements on history and physical examination and periodic review, which also contains a component of physical examination. And if we haven't updated those things, if the physician hasn't been involved with the patient in years and years and years, that can present problems, and those problems multiply as the number of patients seen increase. Uh, and that happens a lot in these uh, interventional pain management facilities 
um, you'll see where you know, the docs are doing their interventions and, and they'll see the patients initially, but then they get handed off to an advanced practice nurse practitioner. Nothing wrong with that relationship. It has to be by the laws in your state, but the doctor has to come back in and see that patient periodically, all right? Because the doctor in most states is ultimately the one responsible. Do you understand that? Do you understand? Who are the physicians in the room? Okay, touch your own shoulders. The thing ultimately lands on your shoulders. And if you are the medical director of a practice, all right, and you may not even interact with the patients, you're simply supervising these folks, you know, under your direction, you're going to have responsibility because the boards are starting to look at that very seriously. Did you have protocols? What do you do when you learn of an overdose event? Do you do, what do you do internally or do you ignore it? The medical director is the one that gets asked those questions. What about educating the patients? What about educating your staff? What about making sure something like this doesn't happen again, even though you can't really prevent it? What about taking some sort of reasonable step to slow it down or to at least attempt to make sure that we don't do this again? Um, so there's lots of examples of that. This is one everybody's heard of, the doctor in um, California that was convicted all right, so they're starting to use some of these state laws in, in um, the federal system. It's just prescribing unlawfully leading or resulting in the death of the patient. That sounds pretty nice, right? But it's not all that nice. It has a big bite, as you'll see in a minute. In this situation, they use the state. So they're talking again about um, prescribing and then the people that died. This is the one where there were... Um, I think 56 overdose deaths in the Dr. Schneider case out of Kansas. And there were convictions and people going to prison for a very long time. Um, but again, they start looking at um, their practices of prescribing and everything about it, the routines, whether they're using, you know, ultra-rapid acting uh, opioid products uh, in, a, in an off-label capacity with the patient that they haven't done the homework on. They look at things like this. Um, and they can bring these cases when an expert says to them they didn't act as a reasonably prudent practitioner. They simply didn't do it, and here's why, and here's the evidence of it. So you've got to turn around and reverse all that, and we're getting there. This is a case that's pending in New York. Where are my New Yorkers? Any New Yorkers here? Too far to fly, huh? Um, so in this situation, uh, Belfiore is a, is a doctor here, and the allegations I'm putting here to just show you what some of these things look like. And so I'm going to go to the next page. There's lots of counts in this. You see where the arrow's pointing? There's nine words. The use of which resulted in the death of this particular patient. So this doctor is prescribing the opioid, the use of which resulted in the death of the patient. All right? That really packs a punch in the federal system. If the federal government can prove that the doctor's prescribing habits lacked a legitimate medical purpose, that that doctor prescribed outside the usual course of professional practice, which is where your licensing board stuff comes in, where the reasonably prudent practitioner material comes from, and did not take reasonable steps to prevent abuse and diversion, then that equals inappropriate or unlawful prescribing. And when the death results and they can connect it, to the prescribing, mandatory minimum 20 years imprisonment. That's the federal penalty. And that's life for a lot of people in this room. 
and um, there's no parole in the federal system. So that's a super serious, really bad thing that can happen. But the same thing can happen and gets tried before the licensing boards. It's just the loss of the license, and that's a pretty big deal too. So here we have an another example. This one's in Texas, Eastern District. And this one has a lot of different charges to it. But these are all, these arrows are all resulted in the overdose death of. Resulted in the overdose death of. And as you go through and look at it, you have fentanyl and alprazolam, right? On the first one on the left, you have uh, methadone. And that shouldn't be a shock to anybody. There's a lot of methadone uh, deaths that are considered overdose because of the way the prescribing has happened. Um, here you've got morphine, oxycodone, alprazolam, and zolpidem. So you see the multiple central nervous system depressants in there. And you have very specific dates, methadone and oxycodone. So they're looking at these things, all right? And these are things that have been found in the bodies of the patients that died. And they're looking to see, were you prescribing all of these? Did you act in the usual course of professional practice when you did prescribe? And did you learn of any of these overdose deaths and take reasonable steps to try to mitigate and prevent that from happening again? And if you didn't do that, that's a world of hurt for you if you get investigated in one of these cases. So this goes on and on and on, and there's more deaths that are listed here, and you see all of these. Okay? So you see the combinations and whatnot. So that's how the, the government writes these things, and then the, the experts that they use, the medical doctors and, and the folks, they'll get up there and they'll talk about this stuff. And they'll talk about what alerts them, to the inappropriate behavior. They'll look at your chart. And, you know, it's a humbling thing. You know, I go back and look at my journals and the things that I keep as a lawyer, and I go back, I'm like, God, that really sounded good when I wrote that down, but now I can't make sense out of it, right? We have to find a way to make sense out of your rationale for prescribing. The reason you're giving that medicine to that patient, the reason you're giving the medicine in that quantity to that patient, the reason that you're combining these medications uh, for that patient, the reason that you're allowing that patient to continue on, um, you know, uh, uh, benzodiazepine. It's not outlawed. It's not necessarily wrong to do it, but you have to have your reason, and there needs to be something reasonably prudent behind it. And unfortunately, we're in an environment right now where it's so easy for a politician to make their mark by stepping up and calling the word overdose. It's so easy for people to catch fire when the media puts that out all the time. And you know we don't know the whole story. You know that. Because they didn't walk in and see everything that you try to do on a daily basis to make this right and to advocate for your patients. But we have to go and kind of look at things from their perspective in order to take back your turf. And, and that's kind of what I have been trying to show in, in these years, and I'm going to show it a little bit differently. So we have this guy in trouble. We also have health care fraud associated with it. This doctor was allowing the nurse practitioner to, um, to, they were billing incident two, essentially, and this doctor wasn't anywhere near uh, the practice on the day of the, the, the office visit. And so they show where the doctor was, and show the billing for incident two. Now you got fraud, money motivation, in connection with a prescribing problem and dead people. And that is really a problem for the doctor. Um, so, you know, the ongoing threat of more physician liability tied to these overdose events, we're gonna, 
you know, you've got the Department of Justice declaring a national emergency, essentially, or just short of it, and going to ramp up the different, um, you know, investigative groups so that they can have a unit focused on this stuff, opioid-related fraud. Now, what they're really doing is they're using a new provision in the Medicare regulations, in part, that allow them to look at Part D prescribing patterns and start looking at that. That's Part 1. Part two, they're looking at where there are large concentrations of overdose deaths and starting to look at who the number one prescribers are and who, you know, are doing certain things. And that's really scary sounding because nobody wants to be number one, right? Not in that capacity. But somebody's going to be number one because you have a large patient volume, right? You're respect me, the only specialty clinic in an area and you've got a lot of these patients coming to you because the licensing board regulations changed and now all of a sudden the primary care doctors need to to seek out the you know the consult with the specialist so you have a higher volume and you have a different kind of patient you have patients that maybe you've inherited and things like that and we have to learn to deal with these to the needs of the individual patient and making it very clear why you're doing what you're doing or not doing something and, and that's a hard task but you know that's what these guys are looking at um, so we know why this happens. There's bad players in every industry or profession. And then there's those that don't pay close enough attention to what their licensing boards say they should or must do. And some of those things don't make any sense because I'm not advocating that the licensing board materials are, you know, well-written. In some instances, they're horribly written, okay? Some of them are very outdated. Shame on the licensing board. But this is the playing field that we have to deal with right now. And once we get ourselves under control and organized and feeling like we really do understand, then we can make more impact when we speak out and say, whoa, wait a minute, the deaths are really dealing with people that overdosed on heroin, not my prescription. Get off my back. I'm taking care of my people the way I'm supposed to. But we can't throw that punch, if you will, until we really understand what it is that the boards want you to do uh, as far as it's written down, because that's what you can defend. I did these things that you told me I must do, and here's how I can prove it in my record. I did these things that you recommended that I do, and if I didn't do it, I wrote down why I didn't do it. I explained it, because that's what you wanted me to do, and I followed that. But if you can't articulate what those things are from your licensing board, that's your homework assignment. Start on that baby step. So who all have read in this room, raise your hand, have you read your licensing board materials in the past, let's say, three months? Who hasn't? Raise your hand. And what, why? Why does that happen? Is it hard for you to find the rules? Tell me why. Time? Okay. Um, it's changed in three months. It's hard to keep up with in some states. Uh, some states have multiple things that are layered and linked together. You might have a rule, and you might have a guideline, and you might have something over here with your PDMP group, and you might have something from the Department of Health, and you've got to figure all that out, and that's not necessarily being put together for you, is it? Would it be helpful to you to have that kind of information where you could go and get it pretty easy? Yeah, people are working on that. But if you haven't read your materials in the last three months, please take a look at them, because many of them have changed. And you're going to look for the shoulds and the shalls and the musts and the may want tos and language like that. We'll show you a second. Um, excuse me? 
Where do you find them? That's a great question. It depends is the answer. <laughs> That's a lawyer's answer, right? So it really depends on the licensing board and how they post it out. Like anybody from North Carolina? All right, North Carolina has a good board. It's easy. You know, you may not like what they do, but as far as getting the material out there, they publish it out there where you can find it, right? You guys have a very active opioid problem uh, and a ta almost a task force approach to dealing with it, right? They're looking at certain prescribers that meet certain criteria and they're evaluating and you either get to go your way or fix it and that's what North Carolina does. Different states, different ways, all right? And so the best thing to do is Google your state name, state medical board, and then uh, and um, opioid prescribing or opioid guideline or opioid rule, and it usually kicks up. Um, you can do that within your licensing board's website. All right, so you go to the licensing board website. It has a search capacity. Search in there for opioid rule guideline. Georgia is a state where it was a little hard to find at first. Anybody from Georgia? Okay. Tennessee is a state where it's split. You got rules with the licensing board, the board of medical examiners, and you got stuff with the Department of Health, and you got to marry this stuff together and make sense of it. And then you've got the intervening problem of the CDC guidelines, right? Where are my primary care folks? Family physicians, all right? That, those, those are voluntary guidelines that are directed at uh, you folks and your discipline, yet they really apply to everybody as a baseline, as I said earlier today. They apply to specialists, too, because if you haven't at least considered some of the things that the CDC raises in that guideline as you're marching forward increasing the dose of opioids, then how are you ever going to be deemed reasonably prudent if the CDC's recommendation is when you approach a certain um, you know, uh, morphine milligram equivalent dose like 90, they might say, you know, see the patient more frequently. Who's from California? California uses 80, okay? 80 milligram morphine equivalent, when you hit that number, it doesn't mean stop, but you have to find out what it means from the perspective of the board. You have to go in there and read what they want you to do, what they're encouraging you to do, and then you have to decide how you're going to apply that to each individual patient. Because California will say things like this, as you're approaching or when you hit 80 milligram morphine equivalent, consider whether it's appropriate in a patient using opioids and benzos to taper one of the drugs. And they start with the recommendation, especially in older adults, to try to taper the benzodiazepine. And if that doesn't work, then they look at tapering the opioid. And, and the California physicians are like, we can't get them to taper anything, okay? That's a problem. You have to consider it. And consider it doesn't mean keeping it in your head. It means accounting for your consideration in the individual of chart of the patient that is impacted by that recommendation. So if the recommendation is to consider and you approach the patient who fits that criteria and you start educating and you document it and you do baby steps and process, even where you might not succeed with the taper, you will have accomplished a lot of things that an expert would say the reasonably prudent physician would do, okay? You may not win the battle or the war, however you want to look at it, but you're going to be a lot further down the road if you consider what your licensing board says as you march forward with these patients and consider it in writing. I attempted, I spoke with Ms. Smith. We discussed her use of opioids and benzos together. 
I found out that she gets her benzodiazepines from ABC, or nope, she gets them both from me. And I told her I really wanted to taper one, and it wasn't because I thought she was an addict. It was because I'm concerned about her being 74 years old on opioids and benzos, and that she's asking for an increased dose. You just keep going with the facts, right? You've got to wander all over with the facts. And we can go different directions on the facts, but the point is you have to know what your licensing board says, and document it, exactly. It is a bit defensive, and that's the bad feeling that I know you all get because you're not here to try to practice medicine the way some lawyer is teaching you. I'm not a doctor. I don't know how to practice medicine, but I do know how to practice litigation in a court, and I know that these are where the battles are. So you have to start at least with that framework and then do what, not so much what's comfortable for you because it's not, it is not a subjective determination. It's not the world of pain management according to you when it comes to litigation in this area. It's the world of pain management according to this reasonably prudent practitioner objective standard as laid out in licensing board materials, as laid out in evidence-based medicine to the extent we have any, as laid out by other relevant um, materials. And that's what gets looked at and that's what the experts talk about. Yes, sir. Excellent question. In cases of polypharmacy with multiple prescribers, do these prescribers from different disciplines share in legal or potential legal liability, legal responsibility? Did I state that correctly? Okay. The answer to that question is likely yes. Okay. But the ultimate way that it gets approached is usually provider by provider. And what if somebody overdoses and dies, what the medical examiner found? You know, if they found the person's overloaded on an opioid that one of you all are prescribing and the benzos were also on board, the first thing they're going to say is, did these people know about each other? Were they coordinating care? And in most instances, coordination of care is a big failure in our system. We have the HIPAA stuff that people get in the middle of and some people understand and some people don't understand. We have you know, patients that may not give you the right name. We have a time problem in trying to follow up and get the records from the other provider. They may not send them. They may not return phone calls. All kinds of things that come into play there. Your responsibility in order to mitigate the potential liability in that situation is you reach out. You don't get a response. You might try something else. You don't get a response. At some point, it comes back to you as the opioid prescriber to take some action. And that action is going to depend on that individual. And so they're going to look at that in the event of an overdose event, fatal or non-fatal, and they're going to say, well, what did you do after you couldn't get you know, the, the psychiatrist to stop prescribing the benzo and whatever else? What did, what did you do if you're the opioid prescriber? And it'll work the reverse way, okay? So it, it's not really shared in the, like there's a definition of shared liability in this area. I haven't seen one. But they could have uh, both of the people sitting at the, the defense counsel table just at different times or maybe even at the same time if the facts could support it. So it, it's, a, it's a dangerous area if you're not coordinating care with other prescribers of what I would consider to be significant medications that are specially controlled that may uh, have an interaction with the opioid 
or you know, really uh, increase the person's risk potential for an overdose event. So um, these are the common themes in administrative and criminal actions. Documentation is always the number one issue. Uh, evaluation, monitoring, response. So we, I just broke these into three areas. They're going to look at how you evaluated this patient, kind of what I mentioned already. What are you doing to get the prior history records? What are you doing when you get them and you have them? Are you reading through them? Are you following up if somebody continues to prescribe and you got a referral from a family physician or from a psychiatrist? What are you doing in your evaluation of the patient? And your licensing board will say what they think you should be doing in pretty, you know, there's most licensing boards have a nice checklist that you can go through. Then they're going to ask, well, you set up a treatment plan, you selected the drug, you, you did all these other things. Did you do the informed consent right? Did you just give them a piece of paper, you know, and, and, the, and maybe they signed it, maybe they didn't sign it. You know that thing you call that narcotic contract that doesn't do much to protect you if it's only a piece of paper in your practice because that is very different. The process of giving somebody a treatment agreement, agreement for treatment, you call it that contract, that's normally about boundaries and consequences if a patient violates, you know, doesn't come in and give a urine sample or fails a urine sample. It, it's really meant to be that and not to be a discussion of risk, benefits, treatment alternatives, special issues. We've merged to the detriment of everybody in this room that's a prescriber. We've allowed those concepts to merge informed consent and treatment agreement into one package, if you will, that has multiple pieces of paper and people often are misled to think that that's enough. It's not enough in an overdose case. It's not enough. Informed consent is a process. And if you don't do it right, it's like automatic negligence, and then it gets worse from there. And it doesn't have to be in a separate piece of paper. Licensing boards have said that. There's been courts that have said those words. But it needs to be set out very clearly for the patient, and that informed consent needs to come alive. That piece of paper, you can put it on your butt and it doesn't mean anything, okay? It needs to come alive. It needs to have a process, a step-by-step -step thing. When we, get, we give this to our patients to start with to tell them about how we look at opioid therapy. It talks about multiple drugs. It talks about blah, 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 risk benefits, etc. Then we talk with them about it when we actually write the prescription. And then maybe the next time we do some additional education or maybe we did it right at the same time regarding naloxone. And then we also educated them and said that that's not the be-all, end-all to solving this problem because it comes with its own host of issues if that's used with an individual. It comes with a host of issues of tracking the patient to make sure the patient listened to you and went and actually filled the naloxone prescription. It comes with the issue of the patient coming back to you and saying, I can't afford it or I can't get it. And then that puts the ping-pong ball in your court to go back and say, well, we'll help you with this, or I can't continue to prescribe, whatever your decision is. But that's part of that informed consent process, and it goes a lot more, uh, into more, there's more detail behind it than what I can cover today, but it's something that you need to look at very quickly, I mean, very carefully. Your, um, I have too many thoughts in my head at one time. Um, your licensing board, Texas, is one of the ones that actually separated out the concepts of informed consent and treatment agreement and gave a list of what should be in one. You could take a look at that if you're in a state that has 
hardly anything about informed consent and treatment agreement. There still are states like that. So um, monitoring and response. So I'm going to go through some of these examples and some uh, plan for you to kind of go back and take a look at yourself. So the question is, if you find that somebody's violated your treatment agreement, um, do you just get rid of them or do you give them a second chance? The answer is it depends. Because the answer depends on what the conduct was that has become a concern to you. Is the conduct um, that they went to a, a reunion and smoked some dope with some friends or they came to Vegas because they could do it and it's a one-time thing? Or is it something else? I don't know. But it, it, the answer is it depends. And, you know, you'll hear Doug Gourlay, Dr. Gourlay talk about it uh, in the context of it's the molecule that you're going to have to deal with, you know, that the patient is using and not necessarily drop kicking the patient to the door, right? Discharge the molecule, not the patient is usually one of his answers when the facts support it. You don't have to get rid of your patients in many circumstances, but you do have to look to see if they continue to be a safe risk or a safe user to prescribe that opioid to. If they self-escalate, that might look different than somebody that's smoking marijuana and they've never done it before and this is a one-time offense that you caught them on, that's a different conversation than the person that continues to self-escalate, right? It's a different conversation than the person who doesn't have the opioid you're prescribing in the urine. So the answer is it depends. There are times that a discharge might be appropriate for the patient if it, if it rises to really you know, almost like criminal activity of diversion um, or scheming to get opioids from you. And then there's the people that might have a problem when they're self-escalating and the medicine's not working, you might try a different opioid. They've already tried that and they're still eating too much. It might be something that it needs to be evaluated by somebody that does substance use disorder evaluation. So the answer is it depends. Um, so here we have overdose event, are you at risk? And these are some of the questions I want you to ask yourself, you know, when you've got some time to think about it. Do you prescribe opioids and or benzodiazepines to your patients? How many do the combination? Okay, it's okay. It's nothing illegal, at least not yet in this country, about prescribing those things together. The question is whether you should do that for that particular patient. And does your paperwork answer that question? And in the eyes of the authorities that put out the overdose prevention toolkits and the of licensing boards like Ohio that has a joint regulatory statement on overdose uh, you know, prevention, where they talk about people using combinations of opioids and benzos as being at risk for an overdose event. They categorize those people as at risk. And so if your board categorizes people that way and the federal government categorizes people that way. Don't you think you might should think of those people at least as being at risk for a potential overdose event and maybe that you should treat them with an educational framework behind it and some other things to make sure that you can advocate for them to continue appropriate treatment or change it if you discover it's not appropriate because you've gone through these things. Those are considerations. They cannot stay in your head. Um, do you have patients with medical comorbidities such as sleep apnea and asthma and they're on these opioids? Of course you do, right? What have you done about them? Did you refer them for a sleep study? Did they go? Did they get the results? If you don't know the answer to the did they go and get the results, then it's probably time to check up on that. 
because somebody that's not taking your advice there may not be taking your advice with the opioid. And it could come down to money. It could come down to those things. Those need to be dealt with and explained and not ignored. When you ignore things like that, you increase your risk and you also increase the risk to the patient. And then that's when somebody says you're not reasonably prudent because a reasonably prudent practitioner would check up. And that's what experts say. Whether you think they're your best friends or not, when they get up on the stand and they got two lawyers on opposite sides yammering at them, they're eventually going to say that's what the reasonably prudent practitioner would do, even if it's not possible in the context of our health system because people can't always afford to pay for it on their own. It's still about reasonable prudence because the answer ultimately is if they're not going to go and you think they have sleep apnea and they're not addressing it, then your responsibility is going to be what do you do with the opioid? You see how they look at you? It's about what you do with the opioid, not so much what the patient does. And the reason for that is this, and you've seen me do this before. You all are in a position of trust over that patient. And that's how you're viewed in these cases. And a position of trust will never be a 50-50 relationship with that patient. But every reasonable step you take brings you closer in that relationship. And it doesn't ever shift the burden to the patient, but it makes it a lot easier for the lawyer to argue, Mr. Expert on the other side, wasn't it a reasonable step for this provider to allow two or three weeks to see if the patient could get the study as a first step. They're going to say, no, it's not reasonable. That's unreasonable, and that can be dealt with. You have to give the tools in your chart at the time you're dealing with the patient and not afterward. It doesn't do any good. You can't put that stuff together after the fact. And I don't mean make up a chart. You can't come up with arguments if you haven't taken the actions behind them. It's not going to do you any good. And so... Uh, how about, do you have patients on more than 90 milligram morphine equivalent? Daily dose, who does? A lot of the specialists should raise their hand, even non-specialists. All right, you have to understand what your licensing board suggests that you do before you get there, as you cross, and as you're already over that. What, are you, what should that reasonably prudent person be doing? And they also say federal government and states like Ohio that people that are on these higher doses are at risk of a potential overdose event. That's what the language says. You have patients with substance abuse history, including alcohol and heroin and THC. State of Colorado, who's from Colorado? Nobody? Oh, you are. You know what your licensing board says? If you've heard me talk, you know what it says, right? What does it say about evaluating a patient and looking at their history of substance abuse? What does Colorado's board say? That's okay. I'm supposed to know things off the top of my head. I, I'm putting you on the spot to make a point. The point is that Colorado, a state where you have recreational marijuana, medical marijuana, the medical board in Colorado says that you shall ask the patient about their history of um, substance use, including alcohol and marijuana. And so you can't ignore marijuana. You have to deal with it. And so you have to figure out how to weave that into your decision-making regarding opioids. You can't sit it over here and, well, somebody else is dealing with that because I'm not doing the medical marijuana or I'm not testing for marijuana because I don't want to know. That's not dealing with it. 
The DEA is concerned with your DEA registration to prescribe controlled substances, not about the marijuana issue as much, even though it is illegal federally, right? But your board wants you to look at it and deal with it. Do you have patients who have been discharged from other practices because of aberrant drug-related behavior or just discharged and you've got to figure out what went on there, right? They don't want to tell you. Sometimes they've weeded out the information. Those are dangerous places to be. And, you know, Ted Jones, Dr. Ted Jones will talk about how that in, it gets involved in the risk evaluation. So here's the riskometer, and I want you all to tell us stuff now. Um, name a prescriber, pharmacist, or patient behavior or risk mitigation proto protocol. What do you do to mitigate risk in your, where's it going to stop? Oh, I get to pick. No, it didn't work. It's supposed to stop. It didn't stop. Okay. I'm not going to do a third strike. Pretend that thing's not moving. So it landed on low risk. Somebody has been evaluated as low risk in your practice. Let's just start with the prescriber. What kind of mitigation protocol do you put in place with your low risk patients when it comes down to how frequently they see you? What do you do? Once every three months. What state are you in? Okay, it doesn't work in other states. Other states want it to happen more frequently, okay? Or at least as frequently as. New Jersey, at least as frequently as three months, all right? And the higher the risk, the more frequently you see them. So okay in California might not be okay with everybody in a low-risk category, right? You still got to look at their individual situation. They're on, you know, benzos and opioids, but still low risk. They wouldn't be low risk from an overdose evaluation perspective. They would be high risk. Okay, because of the combination. So you have to look at what you're evalu what type of risk are you evaluating for. If you're evaluating for risk of abuse and diversion, that's one thing. If you're evaluating for the combination of those products to potentially cause an overdose event in somebody who's older because they happen to be older and they have some other central nervous system depressants in it, you've got another issue to deal with, and that may not be sufficient to see them every three months at least not at first, okay? So you gotta deal with it the way that your board sets it up and the way that you're handed, and then you gotta look at the facts of each patient and decide how to deal with it. And we can go over and over again. How about any pharmacist in the room? Great. Now talk to me about what you all do, because you all have some great protocols that get built in by your pharmacy shops. What do you do? Yes, use the prescription drug monitoring system. Okay, so we've got the prescription drug monitoring system. Now, what about dealing with morphine equivalent? Your patients are coming, they're filling prescriptions at your pharmacy. You obviously have to know, even if you can't calculate it to the T in your head, where people get over certain amounts, right? What kind of protocols do you put in place there? Do you have a dialogue with the practitioner? Yes, no, maybe. What do you find? Do the physicians sometimes ignore your calls? <laughs> physicians, not a good idea, okay? The pharmacist can really be a helpful person to you in kind of tracking this stuff and, and working with them can be important. And they can't do your job. There can be collaborative practice agreements in some states as well. So you have to be very careful. What were you going to say?
Excellent. And sometimes you have to reach back to the provider on that when there's a red flag or no? Sometimes. Okay. okay, good. And so what types of things do you, are on that red flag list? Um, again, using the PDMPs, we're looking at the multiple subscribers. Right. Okay. How about drug-drug interaction? Somebody gets added, a, you know, an anti three antipsychotics and, you know, a couple of antidepressants and a few anti-whatever plus the opioid and the benzo. What? The antibiotics, okay. That can block the... Right, okay. Yep. So the pharmacist can help in these events for things that you might not be thinking of on a daily basis. And so risk mitigation protocols go all over the board. And you want to be able to think about it with your environment in mind first. The patient always has to be thought of to help them mitigate risk of things being stolen, safe use, safe storage, right, safe disposal. Those kind of things have to be taught, and there's all kinds of tools out there that you can give out free of charge. It doesn't take a lot of time. I saw somebody else with their hand up. All right, with respect to HIPAA, how much information is the pharmacist allowed to have on the patient. Did I repeat that right? Okay. Pretty much everything, right? But how you store it. But you didn't ask about sharing. You asked about how much information you are allowed to have. Okay, I'm not going to argue with you. Those are two different questions in a lawyer's mind. Okay, let me just say this. There are times that you have to have a general consent, and then with HIPAA, for release of information, it needs to be specific, okay? And so, but the question, as I understood it, was how much information are you allowed to get? You can get the patient's information. And they're entitled to many of those things, but some of those things may go, may, may better, you may be in a better position to have a consent. Let me just say it like that. Because it's, what they're doing is you're allowed to talk to the pharmacist and they can talk to you in the treatment of the patient, right? Treatment, payment, healthcare options. Well, this is about the treatment of the patient and why that drug is being prescribed. And they want to understand that because they have a corresponding responsibility not to dispense a controlled substance unless they know there's a legitimate medical purpose and it's being done in the usual course of professional practice. They have the same weight on their shoulders as does the prescriber regarding the prescribing for the legitimate medical purpose. So when you talk about in the treatment of the patient, it has a very broad interpretation. I am not going to go any further on this HIPAA issue. If you want to talk about it after the fact, we can. But let me cover this. So I want you all to identify three charts when you go home. I want you to pick a new patient. I want you to look at an established patient that you have characterized as high risk. And then I want you to pick an established patient who's been using opioids for more than three years, if you have one. All right, I want you to go through those charts 
with your licensing board materials at mind, in mind, and I want you, you know, you're going to have to do a little reading ahead on your own time, but I want you to look to see how you're doing with the documentation of your rationale and your treatment plan on that new patient. You know, did you inherit that patient from a family practitioner such that you're, they were already on opioids and now you've got to decide whether to continue them? You want to write down why you're continuing them, not just continue the opioids. You can't really rely on what that other person did 100%. You have to do some of this stuff yourself. That's what your licensing board expects. So you want to look at it in that context. With the established high-risk patient, that should be also obvious. Are you following up? Are you considering some of the risk mitigation? Have you handled the issue of whether naloxone is appropriate? Have you educated them on the overdose issues? You know, have you educated your own staff on the overdose issues? And then somebody that's been using opioids for more than three years, if you're the physician looking at your charts, and you should be, when's the last time they had a physical exam appropriate or focused on the pain complaint? Was it seven years ago? Right? We always think that there's an element of physical exam in every evaluation of the patient, and that's true to some degree, but it's not necessarily focused on do these opioids remain indicated or has something else changed in the patient's situation. So you want to be thinking of it from that perspective because if you can't cover these very basic things, then it's a little harder to move on and look at um, you know, how you're going to deal with the, the morphine equivalent values and, and deciding who falls into what bucket in your, in your practice because you should be dividing them, uh, each patient, into a bucket. They're 50 or less. They're between 50 and 90, and they're 90 and above. Unless you're in California, you might go to 80 and above, okay? And different states have different markers, and it doesn't mean you can't go over those amounts. It means that those buckets all have attached to them things that your licensing board expect you to do, things that the reasonably prudent practitioner would do, things that the medical experts are going to look for. And so you're going to be stacking the deck in your favor, and you want to find out where your weaknesses are first because everybody will have a weakness. Everybody does. Um, so you also have to look at these materials. You've got to re review your rules for controlled substance prescribing. If you're in a state that registers pain clinics, they have a few other things that they require you to do. Uh, your guidelines are similar wording, um, and uh, your guidelines for office-based treatment of opioid therapy, there can be some rules associated with it. Where's the state of Virginia? Anybody from Virginia? All right, your state medical board has a nice handbook on the laws related to controlled substances, right? It's very helpful. Not every state has that, but it's easy in Virginia to go get this information. You're going to have to figure out how to piece it together, but it sounds like that's probably a tool that some of you could use because you probably can't navigate all the way through. Make a list of your board directives, all right? Your shall, must your shall not, must nots, and your shoulds and mays. And the, and the commons examples are um, the provider, the, uh, the physician shall take a history of the patient to include a pain-specific history. The physician shall perform a condition-appropriate physical examination. The physician shall do a written treatment plan. Some states don't say written treatment plan. The physician should... Uh, engaged in informed consent, it might be a dialogue and it's written down that way or a piece of paper. Um, the physician should not prescribe 
controlled substances to somebody that they haven't established a physician-patient relationship with. The physician shall not prescribe without seeing the patient. So none of the telemedicine on the first visit type stuff for opioids. So there's a lot of examples like that. And should and may are the ones where the most, um, where most um, directives fall into. Um, should consider whether it's appropriate to taper the opioid or the benzo. Should consider whether it's appropriate to add naloxone. So you'll see those things. And if you've seen me talk before, we take that piece of paper, we divide it into three columns or two columns, however you want to do it. You put your shalls and must and you write it down. And if you want to type it in on a spreadsheet, that's great too. All right? But you need to do this. You need to hear the voice of your licensing board the exact way that it will come across and out of an expert's mouth in an overdose case. So you have to be able to talk that dialogue. Step four, you review your charts with the board list in mind. All right? Ask yourself, where are you vulnerable? Is it because you haven't performed an updated physical exam? How about these patients that have been around in your practice for a long time? When's the last time that you see a really helpful summary of where you are with that patient right front and center for that visit? A lot of times you've got to go back and piece it all together, right? Occasional updating of where you are with every one of your patients is very helpful. And you should start with those that are in the highest risk category and work backwards, okay? Because um, those are going to be the hardest to update, but you want to update where you stand. Those are going to be things that will mitigate the risk in an overdose investigation. And I went through and focused on, you know, how you go through it. I usually go through charts multiple times when I read them, okay? I, I read them for just general, get a sense of how you do things. Then I read them with the licensing board for the state in mind. Then I'm going to read them and look for the financial component of stuff related to drug testing. Then I might read them for another reason and another reason. Go back through for morphine equivalents. Go back through, and I look at them for that because that's ultimately what we have to piece together and understand in order to dialogue with the experts that we put on the stand. But you don't have to be that detailed in it, but you need to be able to associate it that way because that's how your charts are going to get looked at if you get called into one of these investigations. And so look at them yourself first. Make your improvements. Don't be mad about it. it, it really, most of you aren't going to have a lot of things that you need to do. You're just going to have to tighten up here and there. Um, create a risk triage plan. This is the bottom line and where I'll stop talking for today. So now, um, I don't want to pick on anybody. Everybody in this room that prescribes chronic opioid therapy just got a call from a medical examiner telling you that a patient of yours died over the weekend, long holiday weekend. Um, and you're lucky you got the phone call, right? What are you going to do? What do you do? After you get over the oh crap moment, right? What do you do? Look at the chart. What don't you do with the chart? Don't make, don't change it, don't mess with it. What should you do with it? Make a copy of it. Call your risk management director with your malpractice, right? Is that what you said? Yeah. All right, make a copy of that chart. Make a couple copies of it, right? Don't change anything. Don't try to fix anything right then and there. 
preserve and understand the events regarding the specific patient. What happened? Did you just change that patient's medicine? Did somebody make a mistake and double down on the methadone dose? Was there a mistake in the way the prescription was written and it got filled but nobody called you? I don't know, but you're going to have to go through and kind of figure out what you know and where you were with that patient. And don't panic. You may end up having to go talk to a lawyer. You may get the patient's family coming in and wanting a copy of the record right away. In many states, the medical examiner will get it. And they'll use it in reference to it as they look at the cause of death and those issues while they're waiting for lab results even. But you wanna, you're going to want to preserve the chart. You're going to want to try to understand what happened internally in your practice. And then you're probably going to figure out, well, what do I, how do I deal with the family? Do I talk to them? Do I talk to them without a witness? What if they are, are getting a little hostile with me? They're ready to blame me. They're calling their congressperson. They're going to get up on the soapbox about opioids. And, you know, the circumstances may or may not justify it. It doesn't matter. They're going to do it. How are you going to handle it? And, and some of those things are relevant to you surviving an investigation if it happens. The other things are relevant to you continuing to run a successful practice that is dedicated to taking care of these people. Okay? To making sure that you do what is ever possible within your control to try to mitigate against this happening again. Because it may or may not be your responsibility that this person died. But you sure want to make sure that your processes and what goes on in your practice show that you cared. Because that will be brought up. And I don't mean care like in a nice emotional fuzzy sense. I mean care in the terms of a reasonably prudent practitioner. What would they do if they learned that there was a mistake in the prescribing and somebody doubled down? Yes, sir. Right. Right. That's a very good point. So the, the, the provider here, the practitioner physician is making a point that the burden is not on us to go find out if somebody overdosed. And from a legal perspective, that's essentially accurate. However, the reasonably prudent usual course of professional practice standard that gets used in these cases deals with a, if you did find out, what did you do? And then it also deals with the, how did you handle your history gathering on the patient where you would have a responsibility to ask about any prior overdose events as you're bringing this patient through the funnel into your system. So you're kind of bookended in a weird way, and it can be twisted. So I, I agree with you, you know, at least in form, that you're not all responsible for going out and figuring out if people have overdosed out of your practice, right? No, you're not. I agree with you. The problem is, is we don't have the tools to figure all that out, right? You, and if you get notified, you're lucky. What if it comes into, what if I change my fact pattern a little bit? The first time you learn about it is the licensing board complaint that says that you caused the death, that you acted, you know, inappropriately, unprofessionally, blah, blah, blah. You're, you know, you may not have known. It might not have been your responsibility to go figure it out. Hopefully you would know if the patient didn't show up a couple times, right? Somebody would ask, 
and find out what happened. Maybe you get an answer, maybe you don't. But the point of the matter is, once you do find out, either by what the patient tells you because you've asked the right question or you learn of it some other way, you're going to have to deal with how you handle the active live patient and then how you respond when you find out that somebody's had a fatal or non-fatal event. And that's really what I'm trying to focus on. And it's, 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 this is really just another way of teaching what I've always come out and taught, is pay attention to your guidelines, pay attention to your documentation, and have a plan for dealing with the hard stuff, the bad stuff. You may need legal input because you may not, it depends on the state, depends on a lot of other things, and this is really tough to discuss in an audience like this. When you do and start correcting things, let's say you find that, that somebody doubled the um, amount of a drug and there really wasn't any rationale documented for it, there wasn't any new education about it, and they prescribed another medicine along with it, and the person ends up dead. Well, you don't want that to happen again, so you want to go back and fix that process of, double checking or you know whatever you put into place you want that change to be protected and you know it's post remedial events they call it different terms subsequent remedial events hospitals do this all the time with their peer review and that plan to do a corrective action is often protected in your situation it's not always clear with the law and so um, you might want to ask a lawyer that, that has looked out for your practice whether it's going to protect you in your state. And, and then even then, your choice is not a good one. You're going to choose to go forward and fix it because you don't want it to happen again. And so the question is, how do you make it apparent that you were doing this because this is what good clinicians do to take care of their patients and not doing it simply to just cover your rear end, right? Because you, you can't really do that in, in your, your world. Internal education to your staff, all right? So now you've figured out that uh, you're the physician and the nurse practitioners, and I don't mean to blame the nurse practitioner. This is what we see as a fact pattern a lot. The nurse practitioner was taking care of the patient. The physician hasn't been involved that much. Um, the nurse practitioner is the one that got the board letter, and now we've got to deal with what are we going to talk to our staff about? How are we going to correct our action as a physician who maybe was a little bit of an absentee involvement, so to speak, and how are we going to help support our nurse practitioners more? Because they, you're both liable in that situation. So you want to look at it from that perspective as well. You want to educate your staff and you want to educate your patients, uh, and not necessarily directly in response to the overdose death, but to fix whatever went wrong in the practice, if anything. And if you can't find anything to fix, then what you want to focus on is something to educate on so that you can say, we went back and we looked at the overdose prevention toolkit, we studied it as a practice staff, we also started giving it out to family members and we really were enforcing our new protocol on the naloxone consideration, okay, and whether it gets used and when it gets used. So those are things that you have to think of. Yes, ma'am. That's a good point. So we have um, a practitioner in an acute care setting, okay? And they are going to 
authorize some level of a controlled substance, but they go and they look up the patient's history and they find that they've been on a high dose of opioid. What do we do? This person over here goes and verifies that dose. And then they might also do or find out when the last lab test was to make sure the person had it in their system, if you can find that, or do your own lab in the setting. Because um, you don't want to give, you know, if you have to continue the dose of what they've been on and then you're adding something to that, what if that person is opioid naive at the time and nothing's in their system, even though you think you found out that they were? What if they weren't taking it? You've got to ask yourself those questions because there's so many variations of those facts. It's a good question. Am I suggesting by my statement that when somebody comes into the hospital for same-day same surgery, am I suggesting that they perform a urine test before they do the surgery or add in the thing? I'm not suggesting that. I'm suggesting that you ask to see whether it's appropriate or ask about the patient's history and speak with their pro provider who's prescribing that large dose of opioid. You want to get them to, to give you the information so you feel comfortable. I spoke with practitioner X. They told me this person was last seen in the office a month ago. We're doing this surgery. They told me that the person's urine test had been appropriate. We are going to add this on to the order. And that's just one fact pattern. You don't have to write war and peace, but you've got to find a way to deal with it even when you add in in an acute care setting, okay? Most of the time you're going to be all right, but there are always those circumstances where you've got some weirdo events. All right, so let me repeat. And what is your practice setting? Okay, so another acute care hospital uh, practitioner with a fact pattern of it's ended up that, you know, one practitioner is prescribing the benzo and another practitioner is prescribing the opioid, and they both think they're safe in that circumstance, and this practitioner ends up in the middle of all of that. When we have, uh, we have just discovered a repeat of what I was saying before, a big weakness is coordination of care. And just because they split who's prescribing what doesn't alleviate them of any responsibility, nor does it alleviate you to consider that synergistic effect or whatever word you guys attach to it when you have that combination treatment and how you're going to handle that patient in the hospital setting, right? At least you're in a good place to handle it if something goes wrong. So that's good. And at least you've been able to verify that they are on these doses of these different medications. And at least you're able to make a controlled um, prescribing or give administering, I think is what you would be doing in that setting, administering these medications. And you can do it in a controlled uh, amount and a controlled dose situation and other things like that. But they're not going to be absolved of that liability just because they split who prescribes. And that would be a different fact pattern, but they're still going to be liable. Let's ask the question instead of speaking to hers because we're, we're really ready to break.
Got the question. All right. So, you know, in a telemedicine setting, you, the, the, the rules are in most states that have telemedicine rules that when it comes to controlled substances, you can't just prescribe over the phone. You have to see the patient. What happens when you are covering for somebody and you really haven't seen the patient as your patient? Um, what do you have to do? How far do you have to go? You're in the same practice. You're covering for somebody. You know what the lawyer always asks you? Are you comfortable with their prescribing pattern? And if the answer is yes, you're covering, you're probably going to be covered, okay? It may not get you out of the board inquiry, but you're going to have some, some supportive board information in most states that will help protect you in a covering situation as long as what you did was reasonably prudent, okay? There are exceptions to that. But, um, you know, now if you don't agree with the person that you're covering, and you see that they've prescribed something that is just way outside of the ballpark of where you're comfortable, what do you got to do? You, you know, you're between a rock and a hard place, and the question is, what is reasonably prudent? And the answer to that question is going to be, it depends on the facts and circumstances. If the covering is, you know, they're going to be gone on vacation for two weeks, and your habit would normally be to write a 30-day prescription because you're covering in a situation where you don't agree with the person that you're covering, you may not write a 30-day prescription. You may decide to write, you know, two weeks because that's when that person's covering, coming back. Or you may write for two weeks and say, come back in two weeks, or write for one week and say, come back in one week. That's extra hassle, but it would be one of the inquiries of what's reasonably prudent when it comes into a courtroom setting. So you, you will be protected when it's reasonably prudent action on your part, but you can't go in wholesale and say, well, I was just covering. It's got to be okay, right? It isn't always going to be okay. So last quick couple things here. Identify the patients that you know have had an event, and, you know, you can review the charts, and then you can go through these other areas for consideration. So when you know, the, well, those of you that raised your hand and told me you've had these things happen in your practice, go back and learn from it and bring it forward. Do it proactively. Don't beat yourself up over stuff that's happened in the past. Do what you can to fix it that's reasonably prudent. Uh, follow through with your plan. You know, know your uh, morphine medical, uh, uh, morphine, good grief, milligram equivalents. Think about naloxone, how often you're using your database, how your drug testing plan fits into it, your office visit frequency. Is it appropriate to the risk conditions of the patient? Risk related to abuse, diversion, blah, 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 risk related to potential overdose. All right, you got to know, and that's a Ted Jones type question. Medication counts, referrals, and education. Don't ever keep going on something that you know is outside the scope of your practice. Bring in some other help because those people can make good witnesses for you. If you consulted with somebody in addiction medicine and sent that patient over there for some sort of evaluation, that's a good thing, okay? And, and you know, a lot of times... I'm just going to shut up on this. A lot of times when patients see you make these changes, their willingness to accept it for most reasonable people is going to be based on how you present it. And you're presenting this stuff, if you think about it, you're not doing this because you think they're addicts. 
You're doing this to protect their access to this medication, to this quality pain management treatment, even in the face of all of the hostility that exists right now to this discipline. You are doing it because it protects the access. And when you deliver that to the patient in that way, whether it's dealing with naloxone or the fact that you've got to count their medication or ask them to pee in a cup, you're doing that because this is the burden that's on you from a regulatory perspective and standard of care perspective, and you want them to continue having access. And you're sorry if it feels like harassment, but it's not because you believe they're an addict. Of course, the conversation's a little different if you think somebody is. You've got to deal with that, too. But that's where we've got to go. Last. What do you mean by education on that? Our education? Like Both. Meetings or? Both. You go to so many meetings, Jack, that no, no. you clearly have the education. I love this man. I've seen him for years here. Okay? I am speaking to your question. It's really dedicated to the patient, but it also has an internal staff component, an individual component to it. Yeah, because I didn't get to that part yet. Okay. Two-part question. TDMT, how often, doing it every three months, is that enough? Because a lot of times their site is down. Okay. So the question is, how often do we do the PDMP? You know, you're in Missouri, right? Where are you? Maryland. I don't know why I thought Missouri. All right. Um, Maryland. Every state is going to have some sort of position on how often you're either told to check the, the database or recommended to check the database. And you might want to make sure you know that first. What does my board say to me? And then see if you should be doing it more frequently. If your board says check it every time you issue a controlled substance prescription, check it every time you issue a controlled substance prescription. The good news is, is that the boards are empowering you, in many cases, to empower somebody else to do this database check for you. And that's not in every situation, but you may want to do it every visit. Others are going to be more permissive and let you do it less frequently, but the question is, how often should you do it in your practice, based on your patient population, uh, if your board is, is more permissive. Okay? So they go to Delaware or Pennsylvania, and sometimes the information is missing. Right. 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 So if they go to other states to get, you know, potentially get opioids, when this practitioner goes in and checks the database, it's blank because he can check multiple states. In, in most states you can do that. Not all, but in most states you can do that. So he finds out that it's blank. They may be behind the scenes. They're not all set up the same way. That's a crapshoot, right? So what you want to do is ask the patient, have you received any opioids from anybody else? And you almost want that in writing in their follow-up visit paperwork. And that's one of those questions you want to make sure is answered. The answer is no. They've lied to you to get a controlled substance if they end up having scammed you. Okay, so he asks the patient, where are you getting the medication from? And then he gets three months' worth of detail to support that and puts that in his chart. That's a good practice, all right? Uh, and so, you know, some states are going to cover that differently than others. Um, so how do you make sure you leave markers? Remember, rats and cheese, okay? You always want to leave a cheese trail of your intent to do 
the right thing, the reasonably prudent thing as you summarize why you're giving these medications out. And that's in case you have to feed the hungry rat that may be the investigator or the expert witness. It's for all of those people. Of course, I'm saying that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but you get the idea. If you don't signal your rationale for doing what you're doing or not doing something, then it's going to be really hard for somebody to piece that together and figure it out. And chances are the expert will say, this person really never wrote anything down. It's all boilerplate. There's nothing individualized. It's prescription after prescription. And we got a dead body. And the coroner says it's because of this and this combined together. And this is the last person that wrote it. And they died three days after they got their prescription. That's a really bad position to be in. So you want to explain your rationale and leave those markers periodically. Don't let people go months and months and months and years and years and years without a reevaluation under today's guidelines from your board and under today's standards as you learn about them here at Pain Week. So I want you to go through and, and, and read this material. All of it's uploaded and online. Um, there's my email and my phone number if you need it. But uh, if you want to offer up some ideas of tools that you think you would need that would be helpful in this area, uh, let us know. Say something, you know, don't all shout at once. But, you know, you should tell us because we're the people that can endeavor to bring them to you through future education and try to address some of the challenges that you're having out there. So would it be helpful to have a tool that helps you write this stuff down in a follow-up fashion? Yeah. Would it be helpful to to get it so where you could put it into your EMR, right, or template it so it doesn't have to be handwritten out or dictated out? Because you need cheats, right? You can't remember all the stuff Jennifer said. I can't even remember what I said at the beginning of this talk. But if I had an outline, I could make sure that I was hitting the high marks for this particular patient at this risk level at this period of time in treatment, right? Do you need stuff like that? Do you need things to jog your memory? Because you can't remember everything about each patient, right? What else do you need? This is your time. What else do you need? You need some kind of reporting system for op overdoses back to a doctor. Anybody agree with that? Raise your hand if you agree with that. Yep, that's what I thought. What else? So you're, it sounds like you're kind of asking two questions. Do you have to maybe change the, the type of questions that you're asking and follow up? And then the second question I'm hearing is, do you have to do that every single visit? Um, so the first question's easier to answer. Yeah, you should be updating the questions that you ask. The little smiley face and frowny face for pain level isn't getting people very far because what we find out is that their pain level is pretty much the same and it's always the frowny face with or without opioids and it doesn't get into the smile even with the opioids. And so the expert in examination by the state, their witness, starts saying their pain levels never changed, they were always this and that, their function never changed much, and this guy continued to write the opioids. So you got to update your questions, all right? A lot of things I said and a lot of things others said. Now, do you need to ask it every time? The answer to that question is it depends. 
It depends on what kind of system you have. Is it a piece of paper or is it an electronic system? Does the patient get to go up and punch it out in your waiting room where they can answer and pull up their stuff? Or is it, you know, like most people's places, they give them the piece of paper and the clipboard and they fill it out and then somebody has to read it while they're running down the hall on their 20th patient before lunch, right? So it depends on the risk level. It depends on your system for documentation. It depends on your style as a provider. It depends on what your licensing board says and the tenor that they say it in. It depends on the history that that board has. Where are you from? Texas. Texas. Yeah, your board's got a tough history. What I'd like to see is an example of uh, so the mm-hmm. Right. So Texas, Chapter 170, and uh, it, it, that's the one that has the most information. Texas is after, that's, uh, that's the pain management rule, so to speak, the opioid prescribing rule. And they've updated it quite a few times. And they have some good information in there. In the periodic review, they don't tell you all of the questions that you need to be asking, but they tell you what they expect to see in your chart. And it's kind of phrased in a little bit question format. So um, you know, there were some recent updates to that. Take a look at that and make sure you are asking those questions. And then ask more down to the patient's level type questions. Have, you know, if they have naloxone, have you had to use the naloxone? That might give you some good information. Yeah, I had to use it on my kid, you know. Why? Oh, my God, what happened? Because they got into my medicine cabinet. There's going to be a lot of discussion that ensues after that set. So you have to kind of think a, a, a little bit different. And, you know, some of it's clinical to, to support your decision-making. The other parts of it are more educational and en- enlightening as to what's been going on with the patient. So you want to mix it up a little bit, too. All right, so this is a compound question. I'm going to stop you there because I can only absorb so much. So we have a physician in a practice where alcohol was forbidden. The patient was tested and found to be positive for alcohol, I'm assuming, with the metabolites in their system and not just something else. So they're positive. They end up getting um, the opioids discontinued or discharged from the practice. Is there a period of time... Um, that has to expire or elapse uh, before the patient can be permitted back in and put on to opioids. That begs the question of should that person have been discharged to begin with, and if they weren't discharged, the opioids discontinued or controlled would be the next question. Could this have been accomplished through controlling the opioids to the patient until they demonstrate responsibility? Did they have an actual alcohol problem? What are the other facts that go into this? Because that's going to lead you to what's reasonable for your answer. There's nothing that says you can't ever go back. But if a person is an alcoholic, going back doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Okay? So you have to look at the fact pattern individually. But you're asking the right questions. What is the period of time? I would start with the what's really appropriate for this patient and their circumstance. You told me you sent the patient to rehab. So I'm, you tell them to go to rehab. Do you follow up on it before you take them back? Do, those are questions I would be asking. Do we follow up? We can tell people to go jump off the bridge, but they're probably not going to go do it, right? 
why did you tell the person that they should go to rehab? Because it's an automatic thing that was said? Or is it because you really thought this person had a problem? So even in telling somebody to go to rehab, you could be labeling somebody there as a problem and they might not even have a problem, right? I normally don't drink, but I actually had a, a glass of wine the other day. If I, if I, I don't take opioids anymore, but if I did take opioids, and what, I could ha explain that and what happened, but you could have a pedigree of me not drinking. Am I likely to get discharged because of that? No, I'm likely to get talked to, and there might be some comeback more frequently and things like that. It's going to depend on the patient is my point in saying that to you. So you really have to decide based on those individual circumstances. Yes, ma'am. Let me repeat your fact pattern so these people can hear it. What state are you in? California. California. All right. So the way that the provider kind of prefaced her question, which I haven't heard yet, um, is because I stopped her, uh, this. So we have a situation where the provider stated, DEA says you can't prescribe opioids to an addict. And I'm not so sure that's exactly what it says, but let's assume that that's correct in this day and age, not a good idea. Okay, probably not a good idea in many cases. You've taken the patient over to the addiction side of the house in your practice, and there's an issue of Suboxone coming up. And we know that we have buprenorphine in the pain management world, and we know that we have the version of it for the drug uh, substance use disorder treatment world. And so you are now being asked to consult regarding the patient for Suboxone, as you termed it, for what reason? Okay, so they're going to treat the addiction using the Suboxone in an office-based treatment of opioid addiction fashion. And they're asking you what? Is it going to help her with the pain? Is that what they're asking? What are they asking you? So that you can go up on the addiction dose of the Suboxone for the detox? You need to ask that question to Doug Gourlay or a physician speaker because what you're asking me has a lot of clinical component to it and how that drug is used, and it would be very inappropriate for me to answer it, even if I kind of sort of know where they're going to go because I've heard them speak. So that question needs to be addressed to a physician with regard to dosing of Suboxone in a patient that has chronic pain that also has an addiction component to their makeup. And I'm not going to go there. So, yes, ma'am. A known? Did you say known? Okay. Okay. All right, here's the, here's the scenario. Patient with a known diagnosis of sleep apnea, 
doesn't matter whether it's central or not, right? We got a problem. Patient has been told to use a CPAP. Provider who prescribes the opioids knows the patient isn't using the CPAP. The patient refuses to do it. Did I get that accurate? Okay. So what do you do? Well, we need to start small, slow, wherever you're comfortable starting, but there's a couple things that come to mind. All right. First, you got to make sure that that patient understands that, you know, wearing the CPAP is important to their breathing and staying alive, right? And that giving the opioid can change or have an impact on the breathing, and that impact can be magnified when somebody has the sleep apnea problem and they're not using their oxygen. And so you want to maybe consider whether naloxone is appropriate. What state are you in? Indiana. Okay. Indiana, you're definitely, your rules are really strict in your state, okay? And they even say that it's an absolute contraindication. They use language like that when certain fact patterns evolve in the relationship. If you ever wanted to evaluate yourself on where you currently stand, take the state of Indiana's rules on chronic opioid therapy and see if you can survive an audit using their rules. Because they use a lot of experts from that state medical doctors to testify in these board cases in different states. Their frame of mind is different. So you would go back and also check that. Do they tell you to consider naloxone? Do they tell you, you know, it would be a contraindication in that setting? And I don't recall that off the top of my head, but. Right. Right. So the liability is the, the bottom line question. How liable are you if, if they overdose? In your situation, in your state, your board's going to look at you. And if you haven't considered all of the steps, and one of the steps might be patient. We've talked about this CPAP. We've talked about the respiratory issues. I tried to, to get you equipped with naloxone because I thought it was appropriate based on what my board says. You didn't go and get that. You've really left me with no other choice but to discontinue the opioids and try to treat your pain. I mean, that's really where your state is going to go with that, and that's where your liability potential is, because if you don't go that far in that conversation, if that's how the facts turn out, then you're not acting reasonably prudent. And I think most of the people in this room would feel unsafe and that the risks outweighed the benefits of continuing to prescribe the opioids to this person that has a known problem and isn't using it. Was that, would you guys, is there anybody that would disagree with that? I mean, there might be other things tried but you can't get the patient to do or listen to the advice. So what do you do? In the state of Indiana, you're going to have a hard time with that. Yeah. I went to start and I wean him down off it. Right. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's what I meant. Discharge the opioid. I'm sorry. You're right. I said that. I'm tired. You're right. Hold on a second. Yeah, yeah. And, and so you could maybe take these reasonable steps and you're getting there and that person dies before you fully get to the taper, you've made reasonably prudent good faith steps. But if you don't do that, when you know somebody's not listening to appropriate therapy and you're layering op opioids in, it doesn't really matter what the facts are there, they're gonna look at it as a problem. So take those reasonable steps, document your intent, and remember, to try to reflect your documentation the way your board speaks about it. Because Indiana, that language right back at the board or whoever would look at your chart is going to be very helpful to you because it is much more, it's much more clear than many of the states in the country. Do you do the same thing if they fail to go to a site 
evaluation and keep writing. So the question is, do you keep writing the opioid when you've referred this patient for a psych evaluation and the patient didn't go? The answer to that, I give you a lot of it depends answers, don't I? It depends because I don't know why you sent them for the psych evaluation. Obviously, you're concerned about something, but the detail of what that something is is going to guide uh, how you would handle or respond to that patient. And I think... All right, what other medicine are they taking, if any? They're not taking it. Okay, so you want them to go and be considered for, you know, anxiety, depression, all of those things, and they don't go. And the question is, do you continue to write the opioids to them? There's a lot of steps before you answer that question and a lot of things that may be tried, but I think ultimately you have to weigh the risks and benefits there. And, you know, if the patient isn't going to go are they going to then take an antidepressant or something to help it? If they're not going to get evaluated by a professional that does that all the time, is it within your scope of practice to add that in? Because it's not uncommon in a pain management practice for a patient to get an antidepressant on or off label. So I can do it, but a comprehensive pain management evaluation and CBT should be right. included. And if right. you have that, right. So you're involving multidisciplinary, they won't go. So I think you have your answer but I don't think that that's always the answer in every single situation or practice setting. But you could end up in the same problem. For the nurse practitioner, you mentioned that the doctor is still responsible. In the state of Maryland, they can practice independently. Right. The doctor doesn't have to sign anything to monitor. Yeah, different states on how nurse practitioners are handled. So remember to know the rules in your states because it is very different as to whether they can fully operate independently or whether they are supervised by the physician. Yeah. No, I got to go look that up because I don't have that on top of it. I have certain things in my head and certain things not. What do we do with our opiate patients that are in pretty high doses that live alone so nobody's there to use but a lot? So. That's a really good question. What do you do with your patients on opioids that live alone, that are on... Hey, guys, guys, I can't hear, and I'm trying to answer questions. <laughs> I know them well enough to say stop. Okay, patient lives alone, on opioids, high doses. Who's going to be there to help them with naloxone? What do you do with that? That's a great question, because that isn't going to be self-administered most of the time. And I don't know the answer to that. So, you know, is there a friend that checks up on them? Do they have a caregiver that comes occasionally? Should that caregiver be made aware of the situation? What's their setting? And because if they don't have a good setting for that help and they have all these high-risk factors, you may have to deal with something else clinically. And so you'd have to evaluate that from a clinical perspective. But there is risk there. And it's good that you've acknowledged that because that's probably the setting for a lot of these patients. And you don't want to deny them pain management, but at the same time, you don't want to necessarily continue cultivating something that makes them high risk without a backup plan, right? So we got to figure out a backup plan and work with the patients where you would start on that at least. But don't, don't ignore that, and I don't think you are. Sorry. All right, what's my recommendation for testing for alcohol and marijuana on a drug screen? What state are you in? California. All right. California, medical marijuana, right? And recreational? 
Yeah, you got both, right? And yet, on the opioid side, it's about the opioid prescribing from the DEA and the licensing board's perspective. And so, from a federal perspective, what I used to be, a federal prosecutor, I'm going to look at, are you ignoring, either by not testing or not acknowledging results if you do test, for alcohol and marijuana? Because when you write that opioid, are you doing it for a legitimate medical purpose? Probably. But are you writing the opioid in the usual course of professional practice, according to what we know today about opioids and risk, um, by ignoring that patient's use of marijuana or ignoring that patient's use of alcohol? And that's where the answer is going to come down. And, it's, and, the, and the real answer is going to be it depends. So what do I recommend about testing for it? I would tend to recommend to test it and that you deal with it as it comes up. And, you know, if it's medical marijuana, you deal with the marijuana card, you try to find out what you can about it, you try to coordinate with the medical marijuana provider, and it might be that the opioid's not necessary anymore. Or it might be that you have to do some taper or some other side of, you know, sort of control. Alcohol, is it the occasional alcohol drinker or is it the person that drinks every night? And they have this opioid and God, what else do they have on that? And what kind of risks and how are they equipped to handle that risk of the respiratory depression and all these other things that come into play clinically. So, but from a risk management standpoint, the way the feds are looking at this with the number of cases being investigated and either coming, going from the feds to the state or from the state to the feds, ignoring it is a problem, ignoring marijuana is a problem because it's still illegal federally. Yeah, it's still known to contribute to that respiratory depression, among other things, right? So there's a risk there, and it all evolves around the prescribing of the opioid. Whether you should do it, whether you should continue doing it the way you've been doing it, whether there are any control measures you can put into place, and if not, what do you do then, and how do you go about it? Those are the questions you have to answer. So I think you know your answer, but it's how you deal with it that will determine whether you survive if there's an inquiry. You know, from a risk, well, it, a lot of what you're asking is a clinical question, but there's a risk management component to it. And I think you have to continuously weigh the risks and benefits that this person is enjoying from the use of the opioid. And that's going to depend on the rest of the facts. But when you weigh it, you need to write down that you've weighed it and what you've considered and why you're considering to go forward. Because you don't want anybody to think you're trying to help this person and their life, right? That's one problem. You don't want to be unknowingly give them things without considering these risks and keep piling on the opioids because they could just overdose anyway. Um, but you don't want to deny them pain management either. So you have to balance the risks and benefits there from a clinical perspective and maybe take control of the medication so they don't have so much at one time. However, it's a hardship on somebody like that to travel to pick up their medicine. They may or may not have a caregiver, good situation. There's a lot of factors that go into that, part of your risk-benefit analysis. There's no easy answer to that question clinically or from a risk management perspective. Yeah, it's a hard one. Good faith steps 
reasonably prudent to reevaluate perhaps more frequently. Taper may or may not be appropriate. Change of opioid may, not, may or may not be appropriate. You know, all kinds of other considerations. But continuously documenting in that and visiting it will acknowledge that you know there's a risk, but that you're trying to deal with it, which is much better than ignoring the risk. then that's what you write down. And that he understands the risk and he's willing to assume them and you've gone over and you've educated and you've consulted with a peer and the peer says you're between a rock and a hard place and this person deserves to be able to walk their dog a couple times a day because that's all they really can enjoy in life and he's acknowledged this and we continue to monitor it. Something to that effect. Yes, sir. Okay, excellent question. So from a, um, a drug testing, regardless of whether it's your in-office, uh, physician office lab or an independent lab, how do you look at picking the test menu for a screen and then for the confirmation? I'm assuming you would go both directions and how you do that. So let's make it from the physician office lab perspective. The thing that you need to think about is, you know, you're always going to have how much we can afford and what we're going to do, but you want to look at the opioids that you know you can use a, an amino assay test for. You're not going to get everything individualized, but there's some assays out there for hydrocodone and, and fentanyl and things like that. So you want to consider whether that's relevant to your population. When it comes to the illicit substances, you know, cocaine, marijuana, right? Ecstasy, is it a big problem in your area? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. And so um, amphetamines, can you really get enough information off of the amphetamine? Oh, thank you. God bless you. <laughs> can you, I've been trying to get water out of that for a while now. Um, <laughs> um, so let me just take a sip. This is drying weather. I live where it's humid and so I'm having a hard time. Um, so like amphetamines, right? You can get some information out of it on a, an amino assay, but you're really going to have to have an LCMS look at that because amphetamine, methamphetamine, and all the other things that can be caused there. So you want to look at things logically. Uh, would I necessarily go and put everything that you can do on a chemistry analyzer that's available to do in a physician office lab under high complexity? Probably not. Um, heroin, would you look at that if you could? Probably. Um, opiates, yes. Oxycodone, yes. Fentanyl, yes. Hydrocodone, probably. Uh, you got to go through the list like that. Cover your opioids. Then your benzos, you're still going to want to do, even though the, the, the really bad benzos need that LCMS look. So you're going to have to match that out. And you basically want to, you know, there's no financial incentive in how many tests you put on the menu for prescreening anymore, but it could cost you a lot in you know, how you handle your reagents. Are you going to contract with somebody and rent them, or are you going to purchase them yourself? And those get into all kinds of issues. But you, you're going to have to consider all of that. You want your mainstream stuff, and you want the stuff that you know is being highly abused in your community. So do you pick like synthetic cannabinoids over heroin? No, you're going to pick heroin, right? Um, in the synthetic cannabinoids, those things change all the time, even though the independent labs have a hard time keeping up with it. So things need to be logical, and then they need to be as logical flowing from the presumptive side of the house to the definitive side of the house. So you've got to kind of plot that out. And my recommendation for you to plot it out is take all those drug classes that I showed this morning 
and go on the presumptive side and understand what you can do on an amino assay in your office. And then go to the definitive side and fill in the blanks where you can't and you know you need it, right? And then add the other stuff that you know is a problem in your community. But don't add the whole pile of junk in there. Because if you think somebody is on one of those wacky drugs, you know, you suspicion, send it out, get it tested. But you don't have to do it every time, right? You're going to be wasting space on your wheel, wasting time in your practice, if you could even do it on an amino assay. And then you're going to get somebody drawing an audit on you if you're just ordering it because you think you're protecting yourself. So that's kind of how I would approach it. You've already had some questions. Let me get somebody else. So have you. How about you? Excellent question. So this practitioner works hospice and of life care. Do these regulations that I've been referring to, the licensing board material, uh, apply to her practice setting? The answer is generally no, except for the general rules regarding what makes a controlled substance prescription valid. Okay, so when controlled substances are written in your setting, there's a DEA federal component of it, legitimate medical purpose, usual course of professional practice, reasonable steps to prevent abuse and diversion. But there's not an independent state licensing board guideline or rule governing chronic opioid therapy in your setting. It's usually an exemption if it's even referenced in a rule. It says in, in practice settings outside of this. And even DEA has um, different uh, rules that apply to how you write prescriptions in your setting. So some of the stuff to make it a legitimate prescription is going to apply federally, and your state prescribing rule, just in general for controlled substances, will govern that as well. But the uh, chronic opioid therapy guidelines and rules generally accept your area are exempted out, generally. What state? Yeah, I don't know yours to be any specific. From the last time I looked at the board, which is about two weeks ago, I don't know of any specific chronic opioid therapy guideline or rule dealing in your practice setting. Right. Right, right. No, you're generally not on the chronic opioid therapy guideline side, but you are governed by the general uh, federal and state rules regarding the issuance of a controlled substance prescription. You said OUD, meaning? Okay. Okay. In a chronic pain setting? Or primary care. Or primary care. Yes, is the answer to the question. I think it's always good to use, like there's um, screening for brief intervention and treatment is one of them. The OUD that you spoke about is another one. There's a lot of different forms of things that get to whether somebody might have an opioid use disorder. The Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration actually has some, um, they call them TAPS, or I can't remember exactly, TIPS, that they have little protocols and things, and they're putting out and publishing more for intervention uh, in the primary care setting as well as in the pain practice setting. I think it's important, but what's also important is how you follow up with it. So if you just give them a questionnaire or give that, you know, do that interview and get information, but you don't do anything with it, that's bad. So it has to be acted upon. Any other questions? I think it's time to say thank you very much. I appreciate all the good dialogue.
and, and enjoy the rest of painting.